Pastors Michael and Brenda Brunzo welcome you and thank you for listening to the following message. This message was recorded during a regular service at Faith Fellowship Church. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we believe this message will encourage and strengthen you in your daily walk of faith. God bless you as you listen. some scriptures to you. I'm going to start with Isaiah 7:14. if you want to jot it down and look at it later. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And then Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7. How many knows Isaiah is a, a major prophet? He says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And then Micah, he's considered one of the minor prophets. But to me, they're all major prophets. If God uses you, it's major. Amen? He says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now, these are prophetic utterances concerning the birth of Christ and his entrance into the earth. And we have to understand that the birth of our Lord was foretold by these prophets some 800 years before it actually happened. But the first time it was foretold was by God himself in the third chapter of Genesis. So keep that in mind. We'll look at it later, but now I want to read Luke in the New Testament, Luke 1, 26 through 38. It says, And in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now you remember it was prophesied that Jesus would not only have a, a heavenly kingdom, but he would also have an earthly kingdom. And so David had to be in the lineage of Jesus' birth, and he was. So that was his claim to the earthly tr throne. And, of course, his heavenly throne, he has claim to also the heavenly throne because that's where he came from. So uh, it says in verse 28, And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David." 
and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Sounds like the prophecy that Isaiah made, huh? Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? I've never lain with a man. I've never had sex. I'm a virgin. How am I going to have a child? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now the Holy Ghost did not have sex with Mary. He overshadowed her. And I'm going to show you exactly what happened here in a little while. He says, And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So this is talking about the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner for Jesus Christ's ministry. And in verse 37 says, For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. So she didn't understand it, but she said, according to your word, let it happen to me. And the angel departed from her. Now I want to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. It says, now the birth of Jesus was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, before they had sex... She was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. He was going to divorce her, even though they were only betrothed. That was considered marriage in the eyes of the, the Jewish uh, culture. And so he was going to put her away privately. In other words, separate from her and not actually marry her. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, and he's talking about Isaiah here, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. And we have no idea what Joseph went through. He is marrying a woman that's pregnant and not with his child. And, you know, he could have told everybody, well, you know, she's still a virgin. This was a, uh, a divine conception, and I never touched her. And, of course, people aren't going to believe that too readily, are they? So he was persecuted quite a bit over this. But what I just read this morning is just part of what has become known as the Christmas story. And it's a nice story about how the Lord's birth was foretold and how it was fulfilled over 2,000 years ago in that little city of Bethlehem. It was exactly from the time of Adam to the birth of Christ, 42 generations. Now, I don't know exactly what a generation is. It could be anywhere from 40 to 100 years. I just had an aunt pass away. She was the last 
of her generation. She was my, my mom's sister, and she is the last of that generation. There, I don't have any more aunts or uncles. That was the end of it. So a generation died at 96 years. So generation could be a different amount of time. But anyway, in a few days, it's going to be the Lord's birthday, and it's going to be celebrated all over the world. We're celebrating it today. We celebrated it with our uh, Christmas banquet we had on the first Friday of uh, December. But over the years, Christmas, the birth of our Savior, has lost its true meaning, and this momentous event has been commercialized, driven by greed, and watered down to the point that people don't really understand or recognize the true meaning of Christmas any, anymore. I know you're all are quiet, but that's all right. You can be quiet at a time like this. But Santa Claus, that jolly old fellow, and, and commercialism has overshadowed the Lord's birth, and as a result, we no longer celebrate the birth of the Lord the way that we should, and we don't understand the true significance of his birth into the earth. So this morning, in the short time we have together, I'm going to do my best to change the way that you think and also the way that you feel about Christmas. And the next time you say Merry Christmas or someone says Merry Christmas to you, I want it to have a whole new meaning. So now you can turn with me to John, the first chapter. It's a familiar passage of Scripture, but in order to fully understand this birth of Christ in the earth, let's go back to the beginning. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, now John is the same John here that wrote Revelation, so he's John the Revelator. He's got the deep meaning, the deep revelation of a lot of things that the, that the Lord told him. And this is one of them. It says, in the beginning was the Word, say word, word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I'm not trying to confuse you. This is the Word. The same was in the beginning with God. So who was with God in the beginning? The Word. All things were made by Him. Who made them? The Word. And without Him was not anything made that was Made So the Word is a significant part of the Godhead here. The Father, uh, the Word, and the Spirit. That's what was in the beginning here in heaven. And there seems to be a strong emphasis on God and the Word in this passage of Scripture. And that's what I want to focus on this morning is God, the Word. And a lot of people think this passage of Scripture is talking about Jesus but in order for us to think it's Jesus, we'd have to pull this scripture totally out of context, and we would have to change the meaning of it. And I know Jesus is the word, but not here, not in the beginning, not in this passage of scripture. So just hold that thought for a few minutes, and I promise I'll straighten this all out before I finish, but for now... Let's go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis. As a matter of fact, the word Genesis actually means beginnings. So Genesis chapter 1, that's the beginning, right? It says, and God said, let us make man in our image. So who is the us? It's the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. No mention of Jesus here. He hasn't been born yet. 
So he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them. Who is them? The man. Let the man have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. That's total dominion right there, isn't it? So God had dominion on the earth because he's the one who created it. He owns it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But he created the earth for his man. He created the outer space, the stellar space and the sun, the moon, the stars. He, he created all of that to minister to the earth. That's why we have the tides that come in, the tides that go out, the sun that warms, the moon that gives light at night. All these things was created to minister to the earth. But he created the earth to minister to his man. And therefore, he gave the earth to man to rule. He says, all dominion is given unto you, man, I want you to take authority. I want you to work the land. I want you to guard the garden. I want you to have authority over everything. And Adam did. How did he control wild animals if he didn't have dominion and authority? I mean, he just spoke the word, told them what to do, and they obeyed. And so man was created to have dominion on the earth. And he created that man in his image, in his likeness. And then gave him authority in the earth. Now, I have to confess this morning. Every time I hear some well-meaning person say, when talking about the things that are going on in the world, especially in governments and things like that, they say, oh, don't worry, God's got everything under control. I know they mean well, but they've lost their mind if they think God has everything under control. All you got to do is look around the world. Wars, crime, hunger, drugs, alcoholism, pornography, sex trafficking, homelessness, LGBTQ lifestyles everywhere you look, racism, unprecedented hatred, sickness and disease, corrupt governments, natural disasters. God don't have this under control. If God was in control, do you think the world would be as messed up as it is this morning? Absolutely not. And after the tribulation period, when Jesus returns to the earth, after the rapture of the church, he sets up a millennial kingdom here, and he rules and reigns from Jerusalem physically for a thousand years. Then you'll see how the earth is supposed to be run. You won't see any of this junk that we have going on here now. Politics is going to be flushed down the toilet because it's going to be a theocracy, not a democracy, and whatever Jesus says is going to go. Amen. And if somebody unfortunately makes it to court because of something, you're going to have a judge that knows all the facts. Can't be fooled. You can't find a loophole to get out of something that you did. He'll have all the facts. He'll be a righteous judge, and you are going to get judged righteously. Amen. Amen. So the world's not going to look the way that it looks right now. God gave man dominion over the earth, and man has done a poor job over the years in managing the authority that he's been given. And the world is in the condition it is because of man, not because of God. Because of man, pride, and greed. That's why the earth is messed up the way that it is. God created man and gave him dominion over the entire earth. Even the creeps. And it's become corrupt because Adam gave that dominion that God gave him 
he gave it to the devil. But God, being a smart God, he only gave Adam a lease on the earth. He didn't give him ownership. God retained ownership. He said, Adam, for a while, I want you to manage the earth for me. I'll manage the heavens. You manage the earth. You have authority on the earth. I have authority in heaven. And so when he made that declaration, he was telling Adam and us that in order for you to have authority in the earth, and in order for you to manage the earth with that authority and have dominion, you have to have a body because that's the way the earth was designed. Even though you're a spirit being, you have to have a body in order to exercise authority in the earth. My hands go like this because my spirit tells them to. I walk because my spirit wants to walk and go somewhere. I sit, I sleep, I eat, all because I'm expressing what my spirit wants to do. So you see why it's so important that our minds are renewed to God so that we can do the things that he wants to do through us. Amen. Without this, without the spirit in my body, I would fall down like a glove out of a hand. I would have no, be able, I would not be able to express myself anymore because my spirit would go to heaven and this body would be useless in the earth. So keep that in mind. But Paul even referred to the devil as the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. He said, Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of people. And and so he's the God of this world. He's the one that's in charge of this world, not God. That's why it's messed up. But Satan, just like God, has to have a willing body to do something in the earth. God has to work through a man. So does the devil. Amen? Amen. And unfortunately, the devil's got a lot of people working for him. See, man is the one that was given the authority, but Satan has to usurp it in order to get his plan, his agenda carried out. And when we were made in the image and likeness of God, we were created a spirit being. But in order to do anything legally in the earth, I mean, we could do things that are not legal, but in order to do anything legal and have authority in the earth, we have to have a body. So God creates a physical body from the very earth that he wanted this body to have dominion over. And then he breathed into him the breath of life. So that's what gave Adam life. He was just a a lump of clay until God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That spirit life came into Adam. And now he's a complete man. He has a body, a spirit, and he has a, a soul That consists of the mind, the will, and the emotions. And that's why when we die, our soul goes with us. So when we're in heaven, we know everything that we knew on the earth. We know all the people we knew. We remember everything that we were taught. We're just like we were there, except we're in spirit, until we're rejoined with that body in the resurrection. But he wanted Adam to have a free will. And God knew that free will was dangerous, and he knew that Adam was going to sin. When Adam sinned in the garden, he did not catch God by surprise. God never had to say, oh, my. God never had to apologize for, every, for anything. And so God knew he was going to sin. And the Bible says that before the foundations of the world, God had a plan to save his man. Hallelujah. So God had to test that free will. Why give you, give you a free will and never test it? 
He had to know if you would will to obey him and love him. And so he placed a tree in the middle of the garden called the tree uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, don't touch that tree. Don't eat from that tree. That was his commandment. That was God's test for Adam's will. He said, of every tree in the garden, thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Adam didn't even know what death was. There was no knowledge of evil in the earth. There was no knowledge of death. But God told him, don't eat that tree. Uh, the day you eat it, you're going to die. Well, whether he understood what dying meant or not doesn't make any difference. The test was in his obedience not to eat of it. So Adam's wife Eve came later, but not through the ground. She came from Adam. She came from a rib. And she's the one that was deceived by the devil and ate the forbidden fruit. And then the Bible says her husband, who was there with her, the man that God created in his image and likeness, the man that he gave dominion over all the earth to, the man that was responsible and the man that had the authority ate it too. So whose fault is it? The man. Eve got deceived, but he could have straightened that mess out right there in the garden because he had the authority. He didn't, though. He went along with his wife and he ate it and death entered the world. Sin entered the world. And things began to die. So Satan had planned to deceive Eve, but he was here illegally. Remember, he got booted out of heaven. And now he's here. He's confined to the earth's atmosphere. He's the prince and the power of the air. It's, the earth's atmosphere is a penal colony for fallen spirits, and he's the leader of them. He can't go to heaven anymore, and he doesn't have any authority on the earth. He's stuck in between. The only authority that he has is the authority that we give him. So anyway, in order for him to operate legally in the earth, he had to have a body. And so I'm sure he ran all over the garden trying to get a body that he could use. And all he could come up with was a snake. If you stop and think about the name snake, it fits, doesn't it? But anyway, he, he managed to negotiate with this serpent and the snake allowed him to use his body. And as a result, God cursed the snake and condemned it to crawl on his belly from that day forward. God said, because of what you did, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy, thy life. So the, the snake had some responsibility here, or God wouldn't have judged him like that. But did you know snakes were originally created with legs? This was suggested to me, and I said, get out of here. And, and I didn't believe it, so I looked it up. And it is a scientific fact. Just Google, do snakes, did snakes ever have legs? And you'll see it's a scientific fact. As a matter of fact, they found some fossils of snakes where the legs were like retracted up into the body, and they never came out. You know, they were there, but they never protruded out of the body. It's a fact. It's in museums. I was just surprised as you were. Because Adam sinned, God had to cause death to come into the, the, the world. He had to cause death to come into their lives. 
And he had no choice because he told them that they would die if they disobeyed him. And if he didn't cause death to come into the world, then he'd be a liar. But everybody knows that God is not a man that he should lie. So God had to fulfill his promise. He promised Adam that he would die in the day that he ate the fruit. But Adam lived over 934 years. Well, how's that if he died the day he ate it? Well, he died spiritual death. See, man has to experience two deaths. When you were born into the world, you already experienced the first death, and that was spiritual death, separation from God. You were separated from God because of Adam. And so that, that sinful gene, uh, the DNA of Adam was passed down to you through his original seed. And so you couldn't help it, and your mom and dad couldn't help it. You were born that way. Now, if you die before the age of accountability, God's mercy will bring you to heaven. But when you reach the age of accountability and you can distinguish between right and wrong, Jesus and the devil, you got to make a choice. And then your choice is going to determine where you spend eternity at. Amen? And so uh, spiritual death is separation from God. Uh, the Bible tells us we were dead unto sin. And so when we got born again, we were resurrected from sin and death. And we had the Spirit of God dwelling in us. Same Spirit that God breathed into Adam. We, he breathed into us when we said, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. So when Adam sinned, God's Spirit left him. Now you remember, God would walk with him in the garden every day. And they would fellowship, and they would talk. I imagine Eve was there with them. And the Bible says they were like clothed in the glory of God. And they didn't need any clothing. They walked around in a glory cloud, talking to God and fellowshipping with God. But what happened when they sinned? God couldn't find them. Why? They were hiding. Why were they hiding? Because they were naked. First thing God says, how did you know you were naked? Did you eat of the tree? God knew he did. And uh, he just give Adam a chance to fess up, you know, something like us parents do with our kids. Did you flush that down the toilet? And most kids, after a while, they're smart enough to know that you already know the answer, so there ain't no sense in lying, right? <laughs> but, you know, God is holy and pure, and he can't dwell in a person that is in an unholy condition. So when Adam sinned, his spirit departed from Adam. The fellowship was broken. There was no more commandment for him to obey. The word was broken, and God separated himself from that because he's holy. He can't fellowship with sin. So God declared that day that someone or something would have to die for Adam's sin. And so he immediately slayed two lambs, and he took those bloody coats and gave them to Adam and Eve to cover theirself. It wasn't to keep them warm. It was because it was the sacrifice they needed to cover their sin. But it's only temporary. So God institutes the sacrifice of animals. And all through the Old Testament, you see nothing but sacrificing of animals. Why? It was Israel atoning for their sins and their shortcomings, their iniquities. But again, it was only temporary. It was only for a short time. But back there in Genesis chapter 3... That was the first prediction of Christmas. He makes Satan a promise. He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. And that word enmity doesn't mean 
enemy. It means unreconcilable hostility. There will be unreconcilable hostility between you and the woman. Now, a normal woman hates a snake. I know they got some snake charmers. They got them wrapped around and all. That's not normal. A normal woman hates a snake. And we probably can't prove this scientifically this morning, but the snake hates her. God said he would. God said there'll be unreconcilable hostility between thee and the woman. He's talking to the snake. Actually, he's talking to Satan in the body of that snake. He said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. A woman don't have a seed. Man has the seed. That's what makes the baby. But God says that this woman would have a seed. And she shall bruise your head, which indicates a fatal wound. And thou shalt bruise his heel, which is non-fatal and temporary. And he was predicting Christ not only coming into the earth, but also dying on the cross. So in other words, Merry Christmas, Mr. Devil. I can't do anything about it right now because I don't have a body. I can't operate legally in the earth. But there's a day coming when I'll return to this earth and I'll occupy a body and I'll have the legal authority to undo everything that you did with your snaky body to Adam. In other words, all the authority you stripped my man of, I'm going to strip you of and I'm taking it back. And so... If God would have took it back then, only Adam and Eve would have been saved. So God wanted to wait till there was billions of people, past, present, and future to be saved before he came to do this. In Hebrews 10.5, the Bible says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, talking about Christ, or the word, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, But a body hast thou prepared for me. A body hast thou prepared for me. And he's saying, I'm going to use that body so that I can enter the earth and legally take back the power and authority you stole from man. And you might bruise my heel in the process. That's all he referred to with the cross. The cross was just a bruising of Christ's heel. But he said, I'm going to crush your head in the process. And that's something you're not going to recover from. And in order for God to be holy and justified, he has to be a man of integrity. He has to be a man of justice. And if he says the wages of sin is death, then someone has to die for that sin. But there's a problem. He loves us so much that he doesn't want us to have to pay the wages of sin. He doesn't want us to die for the sin. And there's only one thing left. He will have to die for our sins. So he planned it, like I said, from the foundation of the earth to die for us. And he declared his own death in Genesis 3.15, which we just read. But because he is God and a spirit, he cannot die. So he's got a dilemma. Well, we got a dilemma. He don't have a dilemma. He knows what he's going to do. He already had it planned out, right? But he needed a body so he could die. He needed a physical body so that he could die. Hebrews 2.9 says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death, 
crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. He had to become a man so he could taste death. For who? For man. So we have to understand how important the virgin birth is. There's two events that are paramount to our salvation. That is the virgin birth and the resurrection. You can't be saved if you don't believe in both of those. You have to believe in a virgin birth. You have to believe in a resurrection. How are you going to be resurrected if, if our leader wasn't resurrected? You know, Buddha was a nice guy, but he died and he's dead. Right. Harry Krishna, a nice guy, he's dead. Uh, uh, Confucius, nice guy, wise man, he's dead. And we can't say the same for Jesus because if he's dead, we're dead. But our Savior, he rose from the dead. Amen. And because he was resurrected, we are promised a resurrection. But I say that the virgin birth is more important even than the resurrection uh, supporting our salvation. Because it's the virgin, virgin birth that brought Jesus into the world uncontaminated with sin so that he would be an acceptable sacrifice and he would be able to die on the cross and pay the price for our sins. And without the virgin birth, there would have never been a body, never been a death, never been a resurrection. So let's get it right. We have to believe in the virgin birth first, then the resurrection. Someone, someone might say, yeah, I believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, yeah, but if he wasn't born a virgin, then... <laughs> There might have been a death and a resurrection, but it wouldn't have been an acceptable sacrifice. And you'd still be dead. So God told Satan in Genesis 3.15, you used a woman in the fall. I, too, will use a woman in the restoration, but I'm creating this woman in a special way. He says, you've corrupted, I'm paraphrasing, you corrupted man's seed so that every person born into the world is born into sin because sin was in the seed of the man. And it was transferred to the woman. So every woman in the world uh, has the, the contamination of original sin in her blood. So I hope I don't get too doctorial or whatever <laughs> trying to explain this. I'm not going to explain it. It has to do with the pancreas and the position of it. But a woman's blood does not go into the child. But the man's blood will. That's why there had to be a virgin birth. He had to get around man's seed and man's blood. So this particular woman that he designed, he put a seed in her. He said that her seed is going to bruise your head. Not the man's seed. And so that's how he had... Uh, the virgin birth, uh, ready to receive his body. Uh, Jesus, or the word that came down from heaven, uh, could not enter the body that was prepared for him if that body had contaminated blood. It would be a waste of God because he wouldn't be able to die for our sins because he wouldn't be a worthy sacrifice. So not only that, but if he's going to die for mankind... As our substitute, in our place, he has to die the exact death that man was assigned. And that is spiritual death and physical death. So Christ had to die both deaths 
He had to pay the penalty. He had to suffer the penalty that we had coming, which was death and hell. And so he died spiritually. He went to hell until his, his sacrifice was accepted. Then he was resurrected and entered the body that was in the tomb and came out of the tomb that Sunday morning, resurrection morning. He paid the price in both realms, spiritual and physical. So the only way that he could die spiritually on that cross was if God forsook him. And you would think that God promised us he'd never leave us or forsake us, but he couldn't promise that to Jesus because he knew he would have to forsake him. Now, you have to understand, the word was with God in the beginning. I don't know when the beginning was. It wasn't when the Bible was written. It wasn't 6,000 years ago like some people believe. In the beginning was eons of time ago. And the Word was there. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was part of God. He is God. He was there with God for all this time. And now he's facing separation. You think Jesus was afraid of physical death? That didn't bother him. He wasn't afraid of the punishment that he took. He was the thing that he was concerned with the most was being separated from God, even for a short time. But he didn't know at the time if his sacrifice would be acceptable. He lived as a man for 33 years. Is it possible I did something? Is it possible I sinned against God? Was I perfect all those 33 years? He went to the cross in faith that he was acceptable. And it took God three days to decide whether or not he was going to accept that blood that was sprinkled on the heavenly tabernacle, uh, the holy of holies in, in the heavenly tabernacle on the mercy seat. Three days it took God, and Jesus laid in hell for those three days. But he was busy. <laughs> he kicked the devil's butt. He took the devil's authority, the keys to death and hell. That's why when he arose, he said, I have the keys of death and hell now. All authority has been given to me now. And then he conveyed it to the church when he went back to heaven. I hope this is making sense to you. I'm going to bring it, bring it on down now or try it to anyway. But Jesus might have cried on the cross for several different reasons. But when it came to God's spirit leaving him, he cried loud. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He wasn't delirious. It wasn't the bitter wine. It wasn't the loss of blood. God forsook him. And that's what hurt Jesus more than anything else. He had never experienced separation from God. And why did God forsake him, his own son? I mean, if, if we seen somebody down here that forsook their child, we, would, we wouldn't think too highly of them. And we get criticized by a lot of religions. They say, why do you Christians believe in all this blood and all this death and everything, you know? Uh, our, our prophet is a nice guy. He's a great teacher, and he's got uh, all kinds of nice poetic words and everything. Yeah, and he's dead, <laughs> and he's in the grave. Yeah, we have to believe in this death. We have to believe in this blood. We have to believe in the resurrection. Let's go back. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made by him, and without him was not anything that was made. And then in Luke 126, in review again, Mary said, or in verse 38, Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And then the angel departed from her. She gave consent for God's word to come into her. Even though she didn't understand it, she gave consent for it. She trusted God. That's faith. And God's word via the Holy Ghost entered her womb, the seed. God's word entered her womb. And that word became Jesus when he entered her womb. So Mary agreed with the plan of God. She agreed to have that word supernaturally planted into her womb by the Holy Ghost. And when the word became Jesus Christ, he became Emmanuel, God with us. God's no longer in heaven now. He's with us right here on the earth in that little body that was prepared for him. Now, John, in same chapter, 14th verse, he says, And the word was made flesh. When? At that moment. When, he, when the word entered that body, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. We beheld the glory of God, which was the word, in the body, the new body that was prepared for him, that became Jesus, Emmanuel, with us. How long was he with us? 33 years, physically, 33 years about. Now, the word was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Paul tells us that. In Christ. And in order for that to happen, God had to forsake himself. I know, I know. It's impossible for us to comprehend what God did for us, at least while we're here on earth. We will know someday. But let me read to you Isaiah chapter 53. It's talking about Jesus. This is not another uh, messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy about the Messiah, 800 years before. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we did as it were, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That just gives you a little idea of how, of how people felt about Jesus when he was on the earth. And you think that you're persecuted because somebody says something about the way you believe. And then it says in verse 4, Surely, without a doubt, he hath borne our griefs. Remember I said he died a substitutionary death? He died in our place and carried our sorrows. That wasn't his grief. That wasn't his sorrows. That was our grief, our sorrows. And yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, which means that we looked at him and said, he's being punished by God. He was being punished by God, but because of our sins. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He took all the stripes. All we like sheep have gone astray. Look at your neighbor and say, you too. All of us. 
We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. We were doing our own thing, enjoying life, actually enjoying death, and, and doing anything we wanted, uh, shaking our feast, fist at God, and not even giving him his just due, and he was bearing our iniquities. See, I know this happened at the cross when he drank out of that cup. He drank that cup that he asked the Lord to let pass from him. And in that cup was all the iniquity of the world, all the sicknesses and diseases of the world. Everything that the world did was in that cup, and Jesus took it in to himself and took it to the cross. But I say because his death was planned from the foundation of the earth, I say all that was put into him when he was a baby in that manger. He took that through life and then took it to the cross for us. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. All he had to do was open his mouth. Say, I had enough of this. Take me back to heaven, God. Father, take me back to heaven. Let them all die and go to hell. But he didn't do that. He kept his mouth shut. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as sheep before her shears is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth, not in his defense. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to kill him. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In other words, God, it pleased God to bruise him only because God was, had the big picture, and he seen us. And he said, this is a small sacrifice for what it's going to reap. This seed is going to reap a great harvest of souls. And so in that respect... God was glad to kill him. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He didn't just die, he poured out his soul. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He had one on each side. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Didn't he pray for the two on each side of him, the one on each side of him? But here's something I want us to try to understand a little bit. Jesus went to the cross in faith, but he knew the word. He had the Old Testament. He, didn't have, he had the writings of the prophets. He had the, the Pentateuch, which was the first five books of the Bible. There was no New Testament or anything like that. And so he found himself in the Word. He found his ministry in the Word. And I'm sure he went to the cross quoting this chapter of Isaiah because here it said that he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And he went to the cross, just like you read a word, 
and you try to grasp it and you try to believe it and you try to get it down in your heart so that it will someday come to pass. Jesus was doing the same thing on the cross. God, I have your word. I'm standing on your word. I don't believe you'll suffer my soul to go to hell. I don't believe that you'll leave my soul in hell according to the word. I believe you're going to save me. I believe you're going to resurrect me. Jesus needed to be saved just like we do. The things he suffered and did for us are impossible for us to fully understand. I know there's Bible scholars out there think they understand something. They have no idea. In the beginning was the word, and the word came to this earth and entered into the body that was prepared in the womb of that little virgin Mary. The word became flesh. He became the word, Jesus Christ, God with us. And dwelt among us for a short time. But thank God for all he accomplished in that short time that he was here. He loved us. He saved us. He delivered us. He set us free. He healed us. He restored us. He blessed us. He gave us life. And that more abundantly, he prospered us. He protected us. He died for us. He rose for us. He gave it all. He poured out his soul unto death. He drained all the blood out of his body unto death. The word, the same word that was there in the beginning with God, the same word that was God, that is God, returned to heaven in that body that he entered into in this earth. The only begotten son of the father. He came down as the word. He returned as the only begotten son of the father. And he did a lot of things that we may never understand, just like that 53rd passage of Isaiah that I read. But the hardest part, at least for me, the word will remain in that body with the holes in his hands and in his feet and the hole in his side and the, the scar from the thorns that were in his head. He will remain in that body forever. He will never be the word the way he was in the beginning. The Father, the Word, the Holy Spirit, never again. Now it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the Word is in the Son, hallelujah. And the Son is the Word. But he's in that body, a body like ours. Except ours will be perfect. His can't be. He's going to bear those wounds for all eternity. Never be the same as he was in the beginning. Now John, being the deep in deep revelation, he not only gave us that picture of the beginning, but he said that uh, in the 14th verse, he said that he came to earth and became flesh. The word became flesh. That was a tremendous revelation. But two chapters later in John 3.16, he said what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God gave. Merry Christmas. God gave. Merry Christmas. What a gift. And this gift, since he gave it 2,000 years ago, has been giving ever since. You heard of the gift that keeps on giving? This is the real deal here. This is the gift that keeps on giving. For God so loved the world that he gave. And in the spirit of Christmas, usually, not all the time, but usually when we give someone a Christmas gift, we say, Merry Christmas. That's what God is saying. Amen. 
For I so loved the world that I gave my son. Merry Christmas. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We praise you. Not only for your goodness and your mercy and grace, but we praise you for the plan that you had from the foundations of the world. You wanted a family, a big family. And you started with a man and a woman in the Garden of Eden. And God, things went awry. And your family rejected you. Your family disobeyed you. Your family turned their back on you. I can imagine what it feels like down here, but I can't imagine what it feels like for the creator have his creation turn their back on him. God forbid. So, Lord, I pray that we understand this message. I pray that we understand the true meaning of Christmas and what was sacrificed and what was given for us. Everything the word did in the body of Jesus Christ, he did for us. He did it in our place. The wages of sin is death, and he suffered that death for us. He was the perfect sacrifice. John called him, behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the, of the world. John understood it. We understand it. Had it not been for Jesus, we would have to pay the wages of sin. And that would be spiritual death, physical death, and eternity in hell. Thank God you made a way. Hallelujah. We appreciate you so much this morning. We celebrate your birth. And I pray that we have a better understanding of the word Merry Christmas than we've ever had before. And I pray when we hear that word Merry Christmas, it will bring us back to the place where you entered this earth in the body of that little baby and became the sacrificial lamb that took away the sins of the world. We thank you and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Hallelujah. This concludes this message. Thank you for listening. We pray that it's been a blessing to you. For more information about FFC or its ministries, please contact the church office. God bless you. And remember, Jesus is Lord.